Just remember the government and opposing the Conservatives, I'm afraid, just the hard left, who want to tighten their control. They want to sideline moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any dissent. We know who the hard left are, who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were right to right wing. The hard left printing money, nationalisation without compensation. Hard left wing position. Hard left, the 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 hard we go round every 200 million years And our galaxy is only one of millions of billions In this amazing and expanding universe Looking at live music There's so many people are announcing tour dates And so many people are cancelling them It's almost like they're sort of cancelling each other out there's forever an equal amount of live music going on. You know, when Charlie Watts died last week, I was kind of sad about it, and I thought about all the times that the Rolling Stones have come to Toronto, and I haven't gone because the tickets are expensive and also because they suck now, obviously. <laughs> like, they're really lame and boring. But then when he died, I thought, fuck it. You know, like, I, I should have I gone to one of those just so I could have gone. And the now... And, I mean, I think the Stones were supposed to tour next year, but, I mean, God knows at this point if they're ever going to tour again because live music is obviously the last thing that's going to be completely back to normal, and they're all pushing 80, the yeah. ones that are left. Just to say, Will needn't have worried because the Stones, since we recorded this, are now back on tour and have played several dates. So I'm just incredibly depressed about that. It's like, oh, great. There's another thing I potentially deprived myself of. <laughs> they're supposed to be on tour later in the year. They've said that they're not going to cancel their tour dates that they've got, that they were going to do without Charlie Watts anyway. So I, I, I think it will take, well, one of Mick or Keith to die for the Stones to end. I don't think it could be the Stones without either of them. But... You know, anyone else is expendable <laughs> to the I, Stones I agree. A if, if one of them die, like if Keith dies, it just becomes a Mick Jagger concert. Yeah. But, it's all, but also, like, even if that were the case, I mean, I don't know. He's 78 now. When he's 81, is that going to be the tipping point where he can no longer convincingly strut around the stage and do that Mick Jagger shtick anymore? Mm. Have I already missed my chance? Has COVID finally, once and for all, deprived me of my opportunity <laughs> to see that? Do you reckon if Keith goes first that Mick Jagger's going to tour all his old solo hits about how Britain should work harder and be more productive and all that shit? Like, <laughs> She's the Boss album. No, I think he'll just do Jumpin' Jack Flash and do all yeah, the ones yeah, that everyone yeah. likes. Like, let's be realistic. <laughs> oh, yeah, he, he does ultimately want to make some money. Yeah, this this one's so, yeah. from uh, Goddess in the Doorway. You may remember this This was a five-star <laughs> album, according to Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah, the Stones always used to do little club shows in Toronto before their tours. Yeah, and 
about, well, almost 20 years ago now when Toronto was the capital of SARS. Do you remember SARS? There was that outbreak <laughs> of like, I, I can't remember exactly what, what the symptoms of it were. Just but Russian it was a, monarchs everywhere. <laughs> S-A-R-S. It was, it, yeah, there was an, yeah. That was a dad I'm saying joke. that for the listeners who might not know. I confess. There was, there was an almost Ebola-like panic about SARS in Toronto <laughs> in like 2003. Yep. And I remember the stones when it looked like that finally subsided the stones came and did this gigantic outdoor concert toronto rocks here (laughs) where they brought every aged touring group that was still performing like acdc for example performed at it and i remember they would do all those all these tv commercials saying we're so glad to be here to support our favorite city toronto And I mean, Toronto is very susceptible to flattery. But yes, the Stones, the Stones, uh, that's a roundabout way of saying that, yeah, the Stones do have a place in many a Torontonian's heart. (laughs) Didn't they do one of those concerts for New York recently and then they had to cancel it before any of the famous people played because they were going to get struck by lightning? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it was all the people you'd expect, like Springsteen and shit, and none of them played. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you probably just like got John Legend featuring Comets and Biden core music. But maybe we should talk Python, I guess. Let's get into it. The Rolling Stones of comedy. Let's yeah, do it. Yeah, I think there's, there is a thematic unity between these two things. Probably. Oh, well, actually, there is a direct link because on the day that Charlie Watts died, I was very sad. And I decided I'd watch a couple of Rolling Stones concert movies to celebrate his life and work. So I put on one called Totally Stripped, which is not a different name for the Cocksucker Blues documentary where they show them (laughs) having the orgy on the plane. It's like the Stones, they do a few acoustic songs and they're playing in smaller venues, basically. That's, (laughs) That's why it's stripped. And they cover like a Rolling Stone as well as in their famous performance with Bob Dylan that I believe you've tweeted which, which about. Which is my favorite performance. I'm not sure if we're talking about the same one, but I watched this incredible clip on YouTube from the late 90s where it was Bob Dylan and Mick Jagger on stage together doing Like a Rolling Stone. And Bob Dylan starts and he does the worst possible version of the song he can do. It's like, once upon a time, looks a fan. Do the mom's time and you come to you. And then... After 20 seconds, Mick starts singing along and singing it the normal way. And so then Bob, you know, because Mick Jagger is such an overpowering stage presence, Bob now has to sing it the normal way, too. (laughs) (laughs) So is that not a proper Stones performance? Is that like at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or something? I'm not sure what its provenance is, but it's a wonderful clip. I encourage everyone to look up. Yeah, because I can think of one where the Stones are doing it in, like, a South American stadium and Dylan comes along and then just doesn't sing for ages. <laughs> They're just doing ding, 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 just, like, over and yeah. over again. But, yeah, in this totally stripped documentary, they're covering, like, a Rolling Stone without Bob Dylan. But there's a few little celebrity cameos because, obviously, there's always celebrities at the Stone shows, not where you or I would generally see them in, in the cheap seats, but there are celebrities in the vicinity of the Rolling Stones at most times. And Jack Nicholson makes an appearance. He's just kind of hanging out, just doing his thing. 
being Jack Nicholson, shows a caption saying Jack Nicholson, and he literally looks exactly like Drill in the shot. (laughs) (laughs) It might actually even be the provenance of the fucking Avatar. (laughs) He's got his classic grin, and he's in big sunglasses. I can't remember what he's saying. Just some some, some, some shit. Some some Jack Nicholson shit. (laughs) Grinning away, uh, having all the time of his life at the Stones concert. So anyway, I watched that, and then I watched a show from literally... 20 years later, I think 2015, where they play the entirety of the Sticky Fingers album live. And they do a pretty good job. But again, not here to talk about the music of the Stones. At the start, (laughs) they show the star-studded crowd walking into the auditorium, which is a theatre not the kind of place you'd usually see the stones they're doing a much more intimate show again and you see jack nicholson (laughs) he's there again like 20 years has passed and he's still at the stones show and we never let he's been in their entourage as far as i can tell he just spends his life going to gigs and going to the front row of lakers games that's that's his life which Fair enough, really. If you yeah, well, one of my favourite episodes of your podcast, Will, The Important Cinema Club, is called Jack Nicholson Will Probably Die Alone. <laughs> That's right. I think we gave it that title because there was some story in the news that week that Nicholson had given an interview where he expressed concern that he was not going to have that one last great love, <laughs> which was a sad thing to read coming from a man who has obviously lived such a well-lived life yeah his thing was that like because of his reputation as a womanizer like he feels like women don't trust him basically (laughs) they'll have a fling with him but nothing more i think we should all work together and get jack a girlfriend you know (laughs) it could be like a premise for a reality show or or even make a film that's like his return to acting based on that premise yeah, I mean, we might not actually want that at this point. I think it's probably best to remember him in his glory days in the bucket list. What was the... F- oh, he was going to do a remake of Tony Erdman? He was going to come back, and then he did Yeah, and, and thank God we didn't get that, frankly. <laughs> but it wasn't just Jack Nicholson at this Rolling Stones show in 2015. I'm pretty sure I saw the guy from the Arctic Monkeys there. I think it was him, but he's not who... I was going to mention. There was also one Mr. Eric Idle, never missing a chance to be around fellow celebrities, be it, you know, hanging out with Jack Nicholson in the audience or maybe talking to the Stones before or after the show backstage. Eric Idle was not going to miss the chance to see the Rolling Stones in that very, very special small theatre show. Well, I think that you've just named the man who I assume is kind of the impetus of this episode, because Jack, you and I have talked in the past about kind of our mutual fascination with Eric Idle. I'm just going to say off the top that I have a certain amount of unconditional love for Eric Idle and for (laughs) all six of the men involved in Monty Python. I will always love them. They all have a lifetime pass. But Eric Idle is kind of an annoying guy. (laughs) he is definitely i mean all the pythons right now with the possible exception of michael palin are some variety of annoying and eric idol he's not annoying in the same way that cleese is but he's the most star fuckerish of the pythons he's the guy who whenever you see him interviewed he's always talking about how he rubbed shoulders with David Bowie and how he knows Tom Hanks and how he's hung out with Led Zeppelin and all of this. And I've read 
Eric Idle's recent autobiography, which I think anybody can guess what the title of it is. And it's page after page after it, page of him me, talking me, about me or something. <laughs> it's always look on the bright side of life. <laughs> Great. That's, wow, that's shit. Like, I thought for, that's not even in line with the Monty Python house style of, like, something really cynical about how we're just doing this for the money that they've been doing for, like, decades. Yeah. It would be like, always look on the green side of life, as in dollars, not weed no that's rubbish the greedy bastard diary his previous sort of memoir was a much more in character title i agree and the recent autobiography has surprisingly little python in it there's you know a chapter about python and of course python kind of weaves in and out but it's a lot of i, I don't know you kind of get the sense that eric idol resents python a little bit you get the sense that he was definitely like the younger brother of the troupe he wasn't John Cleese. He felt overshadowed sometimes by some of them, I think. And so the book is this acting out. It's him saying, oh, yeah, well, I had all of this sex and I knew all of these famous people. I was friends with David Bowie and I was friends with George Harrison. I was best friends with George Harrison among the many, 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 many names that are dropped in the book. And there's something very, very sad about that because you kind of want to take him aside and say, you're a python, you understand. You know, you're, yeah, you, you are, are famous. <laughs> yeah, you're comedy royalty. You don't need to act like this. But I don't know, he's also been a fascinating figure for many years because until Spamalot became such a huge hit and revived his fortunes, there was a fallow period before that when oh, he yeah. was doing stuff like The Ruddles 2. Uh, <laughs> or, Worst movie of all time. <laughs> or he did a tour called Eric Idle Exploits Monty Python, where he did all the old Python bits. I used to have the CD of that, and it's so fucking weird because he's got all these Americans doing all the Monty Python sketches. But there's also like two new songs one of which is like some shitty song that the female cast members sing about how women love shopping that's like the level that the new material on eric idol exploits monty python was working at i know that in the 90s he was a big enthusiast an advocate for a python reunion he's the one of the troupe that seemed to have had the hardest time establishing an identity after python and until Spamalot, until he somehow made it work for him, until Spamalot, he gave the impression of being kind of floundering and constantly trying to return to the past glory, which is unbecoming of a comedy legend. Mm. Spamalot, of course, yeah, totally proved that he could set himself out as something completely independent of the Monty Python brand. You know? <laughs> Establish himself as something new, original, fresh. Now, obviously, he became a kind of self-appointed custodian of the Monty Python legacy. In a way that also I have seeming liked. to have this total resentment for it that you point out. Maybe not yeah, and he's a custodian of the Monty Python legacy because the other ones don't really care anymore. They've kind of moved on, and there's this guy who says, I've got all these ventures that can make you a bunch of money in your old age. And they clearly have all said, fine, we don't <laughs> care. Happy to have some money. And his conception of Python is certainly not the Monty Python that I grew up loving. No, it's there's a few elements, like... No. 
heavy cynicism, <laughs> like all these jokes about how like we're just in it for the money, the hastily cobbled together for a fast buck album, etc. Mm-hmm. You know that kind of sort of self-deprecating, but not really. Kind of <laughs> like being like it's almost like a rap thing like yeah we're rich <laughs> fuck you yeah um, then also a heavy dose of musical comedy like i mean monty python obviously did have some famous songs always look on the bright side of life you know obviously an iconic song not particularly funny maybe mm-hmm. a, a couple of witty lines and eric idol's got a lot of those songs with monty python actually of they're witty but they're not your favourite Monty Python bits, you know, like the Galaxy song, fine, it's got a funny, again, incredibly cynical punchline, but again, it's not like one of the highlights of the meaning of life necessarily. And he's brought all that to the forefront. Their 2014 reunion was a kind of Monty Python musical theatre review. I sort of feel like ever since Monty Python started in 1969, there have been two different Monty Pythons. On the one hand, they're this group of innovators. They're constantly wrestling with whatever form they're in. They're constantly trying to subvert your expectations. They're doing (coughs) sketches that end halfway through the sketch without bothering to have a punchline they're doing things like there's that one episode of the show that starts the first five minutes of it looks like just an old movie and they've shot it to look like an old movie and they play the entire opening credits of an old movie and it's like a pirate film and they have a bunch of pirates sail up to shore and then only after five minutes do they finally pass John Cleese at the desk and he says and now for something completely different crazy (laughs) stuff like that or they'll run the end credits halfway through the show so there's that Monty Python a Monty Python where every episode there are long form sketches and then there are these really short sketches that are just one idea and animation coming in out and it feels unstable and combustible but then there's the other monty python that is the rolling stones of comedy (laughs) yeah yeah 20 sketches that are preserved in amber and then you see the sketches over and over and over again as if it's abbott and costello doing who's on first and these two monty pythons are working at cross purposes and i feel like eric idol represents the second one (laughs) (laughs) yeah vegas python python in the sparkly suit with the Gerard, gut. what's your relationship with monty python so coming in what you were saying there i think there's an element with eric idol where he's almost become a living eric idol comedy character from the <laughs> classic python era in that he's very much acting as the cheerleader and ringleader of these various new projects which are very much with those two types of Python in the camp of here's the greatest hits with a little bit of self-referential framing the new material and very much happy to go along with this sort of smoozing celebrity persona. He is a sort of slick compare Monty Python character now. Uh specifically one that would be played by Eric like Idle that one what was that sketch from early on in the show where he played the guy who's introducing an act at a supper club and he's like really sleazy and really slimy yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i feel like that almost became a stock character throughout the show he sort of returned to it a few times or similar mm. characters but i know i can picture exactly the ones you mean yeah like, i mean immediately uh, after python or was it before the fourth series aired the one they did without John Cleese. He did a couple of series of his own sketch comedy show called Rutland Weekend Television. And I've never really seen any of it, I don't think, because he's always resisted a commercial release of it. I'm eager to see it. I recently downloaded a file of the complete series. 
It's the first time I've seen it anywhere. It was never released on video when I was a kid, so I never had a chance to see it. I'm eager to see it. It would be nice to see some kind of prime era Python adjacent material. I know that Rutland Weekend Television, though, it's a very close collaboration between him and Neil Innes, mm. who was this very well-regarded parody songsmith with whom he created the Ruddles. And I know that the two of them in more recent years, Neil Innes has recently passed, had a rather rocky relationship. It seems because Neil Innes was trying to claim a little bit too much of his rightful credit for having contributed to some of Eric Idle's ventures. Like, it seems that Eric Idle was the Stan Lee to Neil Innes's Steve Ditko. Well, I think Eric <laughs> Idle, it's not enough for him being a legend of comedy. He wants respect as a musician. And uh-huh. I've previously on the show slagged off his guitar playing, but a friend of mine on Twitter, Robert, a boy named Posh, is a very good guitarist. And he says that he's seen Eric Idle play some stuff that's actually quite impressive. So I'll take his word for it. But I still don't think he's really, with his quirky little songs, a musician of the magnitude of Neil Innes, who, like you say, Will, he was a gifted parody songwriter, but he was much more than that. I mean, he was one of the core members of the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, who they were sort of a comedy act. And they were the house band on a pre-Python show called Do Not Adjust Your Set in the 60s that Eric Idle and Michael Palin and Terry Jones and I think Terry Gilliam were all on. And he also, of course, did the Ruddles album, which in North America, at least, was a much greater success than the Ruddles movie. And the album, which many people have, is this incredible tapestry, this incredible pastiche of Beatles songs representing all the different eras of the Beatles' career. You would listen to it and actually at times think that you were listening to the lost Beatles songs. And, and the Beatles, Eric, I, I think, were very impressed by it, actually. Right, and Eric Idle actually didn't write it, which I didn't realize <laughs> until fairly recently. I always Not just a sort of fucking assumed. note. Yeah. Not a word of the songs. Like, <laughs> it was all Neil Innes. Like, Eric Idle, I like the Ruttles film. That's why I'm saying I would quite like to see some Rutland Weekend television. He was still funny in the 70s. I think that there's a lot of good stuff in the original Ruttles, not in the Ruttles 2. <laughs> but he didn't contribute at all to the music. Like, the fact that the music was such an eerily accurate pastiche of the Beatles was because he had an actual brilliant musician writing those songs. And then in the 90s, the musicians who actually played on the Ruttles album. So that's, I think, the guy who played and sang all the parts for Eric Idle's character Mimes in the movie. He actually died in the interim, probably murdered by Eric Idle. And uh, <laughs> and so that left the guy who plays Barry Wom for Ringo character, I think John Hassel or something, and Ricky Fatar, their guitarist, who was actually in the 70s briefly the drummer of the Beach Boys. And then they made an album inspired by the Beatles sort of getting back together in as much as they could with John Lennon dead for this anthology project for Ruttles put together the three actual musicians surviving from the Ruttles put together a new Ruttles album called Archaeology and I own it on CD I think I still do in the booklet it contains a little characters created by Eric Idle credit but that's all he did for the album 
aka nothing <laughs> pretty much that's the only credit that he deserved for that record is originally coming up with the characters reportedly eric idol worked overtime to suppress that album yeah, did he keep suing them or something? Yeah, or he put pressure on management to, I don't know, cancel events or something like that. He was not a supporter of the album. No, although he clearly thought there was something in the music, because a few years later, when he went to make The Ruttles 2, he used all the songs. <laughs> <laughs> just stuck them over poor quality outtakes from the original <laughs> film. So, you know, it's pretty easy to psychoanalyze Eric Idle here because I feel like we're slagging him a lot and partly it's out of necessity because he's done so much to obfuscate Neil Innes's role in the creation of the Ruddles and we're slagging him but we have to make clear that Eric Idle's own contribution to it was very good. That TV movie that he wrote and acted in is so clever in its use of Beatles iconography and Beatles history. Shea Stadium named after the Cuban guerrilla leader, Shea Stadium. And it was here in 1965 that the Ruttles came, well, not uh, here in the car park, obviously, but um, back there in the stadium, that the Ruttles came in 1965 to a capacity house, a sellout. But it's easy to psychoanalyze him because he clearly, in the 90s, was a little anxious. You know, he was looking at the other pythons and seeing what they accomplished. And it's hard to be dining out on Python alone for 30 years. And then when your other big thing, the Ruddles, somebody else is starting to claim some credit for it, you start to get a little anxious and insecure. <laughs> Have you seen the film Nuns on the Run that came out in 1990? <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, 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 yes, you're right. There, there was another big thing that he was involved in. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that this was one of the first films I watched that had nudity in it. <laughs> I, rem I actually screen. remember that too, because, I mean, <laughs> over here it was rated PG-13, but it had boobs in it. Well, actually, Monty Python's films as well, to be fair. <laughs> but, yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah, this would be one of the first films not made by all six of the pythons that had nudity in it i stand corrected because obviously anyone who's seen the life of brian has seen an on-screen dick you know let alone female nudity but yeah that film you know what i was gonna say it's terrible but i have not seen it since i was like 10 11 so yeah same but i'm just gonna say it's terrible anyway i, mean, <laughs> I think there's... the consensus is that it's terrible <laughs> i mean look the whole joke of it was just what if two guys dressed as nuns which <laughs> honestly is not all that funny to me that was one of those movies that i think it was greenlit in the wake of the success of a fish called wanda and so mm. there was this wave of let's do British crime comedies that have crossover potential in the US and it didn't quite work. Wait, Geraint, this is written by someone called Michael White. Okay, no, it's a British theatrical empresario and film producer, not, not the, the shitty centrist one. columnist from The Guardian, Michael <laughs> White. Okay, just, wa just wanted to clarify. This one probably not in the Black Book, <laughs> like The Guardian's, allegedly. <laughs> Alleg allegedly, isn't the evidence up? Well, there's lots of Michael Whites in London. But it's okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm just looking at some of the other films that Eric Idle starred in in the 90s. I mean, he seemed to do a few leading roles not in anything successful but lead roles nonetheless yeah i've seen a few of them i've seen too much sun the robert downey senior joint oh where he plays a gay man who has to pretend to be straight to get an inheritance 
Okay, that sounds bad already. Like, Eric Idle's not going to do a, <laughs> a good job in that role, I don't think. Can you confirm? There, there was also one that I would like to see that I haven't called Missing Pieces, which is a buddy comedy with Robert Wool. Wow. Robert Wool from Batman. And it's <laughs> two of them being a couple of wackos, you know? Characters uh, but... include a one-handed kingpin, a lawyer who suffers from dwarfism, and twin brothers, one a crazed photographer, and the other a mild-mannered antique dealer. That sounds like the back cover blurb for Bob Dylan's Tarantula. <laughs> <laughs> I think Eric Idle is actually quite wonderful in Wind in the Willows, the Terry oh, yeah. Jones film. Yeah. Well, that is one of the closest things for a couple of decades to a Python reunion, because as well as Eric Idle as Mr. Rat, Mr. Toad is portrayed by the film's writer and director Terry Jones, Michael Palin plays the son, and John Cleese appears as Mr. Toad's lawyer as well. And so. it's a wonderful film, I think. It has a mm. lot of that Python spirit in the right proportions for a preteen audience. And the cast is terrific. And the whole conceit of having the actors playing animals, but just with very minimal makeup, like they give Eric <laughs> Idle a couple of whiskers and they paint Terry <laughs> Jones green, but otherwise they're just actors and you use your imagination. I think it works so well. And that's what they should have done for the Cats movie that they did. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, there's no like yeah freakish animation or combinations of animation and actual human in this one. Yeah, it's all just kind of light costumes and makeup. You've got Steve Coogan as Mole. He's quite good in it, I think. He plays Mole just like having a, a torch on his head like he's a miner. Again, another great costume. And yeah, Terry Jones wrote and directed that film. And it's probably his best film as a director outside of the Monty Python films. Well, I haven't seen Personal Services, so I can't confirm that. But yeah, I, mean, that's true. I, I have seen Eric the Viking, and it's certainly better than that. <laughs> that's got a couple of Python collaborations, hasn't it? Yeah, John Cleese as half done the black it kind of feels like a monty python movie but just written by one of the six so it's like <laughs> one sixth as good and it's at like one sixth the pace as well oh god yeah no michael palin either in that one we are talking about i guess late period python here so i'm sure we'll get back to mr idol because i think we should probably talk about the 2014 reunion show yeah but i'd love to get your guys sense of the other pythons particularly Cleese and Gilliam. Where are you at with them right now? They've just both kind of let their inner grumpy old man come out, haven't they, in recent mm. years? I suppose Cleese has probably said quite a lot of things along those lines over the years. Yeah, and that, also but, his support um, for lame new centrist parties in Britain. That has also sucked. Yeah. I love watching those commercials, yeah. the commercials from the 80s, where he's endorsing <laughs> the Lib Dems. And he's just, he's, he's endorsing the Lib Dems in 1997. Oh, he, yeah. <laughs> the time at which centrist politics in Britain, like, was full. Tony Blair had it covered. <laughs> I, I love those commercials because... Cleese is just doing the full John Cleese thing. Like, he's full Basil Fawlty, and he's like, Spritton once again needs sensible leadership to lead the country. You know, doing all the vocal mannerisms that he normally does, but just saying really boring and stupid centrist bullshit. <laughs> yeah. no, they're so funny. Ha I'll have to stick a couple of clips of those in here, just because, yeah, it's just like, well, the left, they just want to nationalize everything, and the right, they just don't care about the poor. It's just all this totally 
lame centrist stuff. Thinner follows a party political broadcast by the SDP Liberal Alliance. If you want to feel good, become an extremist. Okay. Now you have a choice. If you join the hard left, they'll give you their list of authorised enemies. Almost all kinds of authority, especially the police, the city, Americans, judges, multinational corporations, public schools, furriers, newspaper owners, fox hunters, generals, class traitors, and, of course, moderates. Or, if you'd rather be an extremist on the hard right, no problem, fine, you still get a lovely list of enemies, only they're different ones. Noisy minority groups, unions, Russia, weirdos, demonstrators, welfare sponges, meddlesome clergy, peaceniks, the BBC, strikers, social workers, communists, and of course, moderates. At one point, he just lists, like, a bunch of insults. It's like that scene in Spike Lee's 25th Hour, where all the people <laughs> just, like, racially abuse each other. Like, they, sh- yeah. <laughs> they show the insides of their mind. And, and Cleese just reels off a bunch of things about the left being, like, communists and stuff. And then a bunch of stuff about, like, the right being heartless. <laughs> I mean, he's good in them. He's on form. It's Cleese going hard. I reckon internally it must have done well in the party because they obviously went back to the well a few years back and appointed a comedy character as leader Tim (laughs) Farron with absurd vocal mannerisms just a ridiculous character yeah John Cleese did have one of the best post Python projects with A Fish Called Wanda which he wrote and pretty much it seems consensus that he like co-directed that film in an uncredited fashion yeah the sense that I get is that Charles Crichton was very much the director of just kind of where to put the camera how to make scenes work visually like for example that great farce scene in that movie where it's him and jamie lee curtis he's trying to hide jamie lee curtis in the house when his wife comes in and then kevin klein also comes in and he's like i'm i'm henry manfren jensen that scene there's such clockwork precision in just the visual geography of the scene and how that's communicated through the camera i feel like a lot of that is charles Crichton, whereas the performances are very much cleese's work like he really worked with the actors charles Crichton did not return for the quote-unquote spiritual successor to A Fish Called Wonder, 1997's Fierce Creatures, which I watched quite a few years ago. It stars the same four people as A Fish Called Wonder, Cleese, Jamie Lee Curtis, Kevin Klein, and again in another Python collab, Michael Palin. But this time it was directed by Robert Young and uh, Fred... Fred Shepsey. Fred Fred Italian. (laughs) Yeah, and and that's because they reshot the whole last third of the movie a year later. The only time they were able to regroup everyone. They shot the movie and it tested poorly. So they got everyone back together, added another $10 million to the movie's budget. And I think judging by the finished product, it didn't help because like Release you watch the, the Cleese cut <laughs> yeah you watch the movie and for the first hour I mean it's not very good it's not very funny but for the first hour there's a story and it's sort of coherent and it's following a particular arc but then in the last third half the cast disappears and some whole new drama emerges and a bunch of loose ends get tied up in really awkward ways it's not seamless And I don't know, with John Cleese, I always find it very painful whenever he does 
the thing where he goes on Twitter and does some like, oh, it seems cancel culture has once again gone too far. Or worse, when he starts being like, oh, it seems to me that a, that a British society should be largely British. But yeah. then if people from other less evolved cultures start immigrating to Britain, can it still be said to be Britain anymore? I know. <laughs> you see that stuff, and I think this is obviously very depressing. And also, if he were funny in my lifetime maybe i would let it slide <laughs> yeah 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 he seems to have completely given up after fierce creatures like that yeah. was like it says at the bottom of the wikipedia page cleese has since stated that following up a fish called wonder with a second film had been a mistake that seems to mean a second film that he actually had any kind of creative involvement in whatsoever not like a spiritual successor to that film he was just like hmm I should never write anything again. And, That's um, unbelievably sad, unbelievably depressing. And yeah, after that, it's just he shows up in a James Bond movie for two minutes and is not funny. Mm. <laughs> or like he's, I don't know, basically a butler and a bunch of like shitty American comedies. He was in uh, the early, the first two Harry Potter films and then I think he got recast. I think the character was just cut from the ones after that. He was nearly headless Nick. And he's, I think he's in the first one for maybe 45 seconds. Uh, <laughs> so many British actors dining out on that 45 yeah. seconds in Harry Potter. It's like a who's who of British comedians just strewn in all the completely insignificant roles. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, here's Jarvis Cocker as a wizard singer. You see him in all these movies and you see him and you're like, was was this guy ever funny? I mean, did did th did this shtick ever make me? How did this make me laugh? And then, of course, you see an episode of Faulty Towers, and you're like, oh yeah, when he was at his peak, he was the comedy equivalent of Mozart. You know, his timing was unbelievable. His physical comedy was unbelievable. You know, mm. the scene of him hitting the car <laughs> with the tree branch, one of the funniest things ever. And I don't know, it's it's just, so, it's painful. I mean, he's given us enough, I guess, but it's painful that sometime after 1988, he decided, okay, that's enough being funny for one lifetime. <laughs> yeah, he gave it another try once and was just like, yeah. okay, uh, that didn't work. Okay, bye. Uh, and then I guess a couple of decades later, pretty much, he got divorced and was like, oh, fuck. So he had to actually like write some comedy in a fashion for the first time in decades. I'm talking, of course, of his best-selling alimony tour where he went out on the road for like what seemed like about a decade and was going around just sort of doing something a bit like stand-up there were some jokes in there and worked out routines that could be classed as stand-up comedy but then a lot of it was just like that kind of raconteur shit you know some uh Fran Lebowitz kind of stuff. If Fran sure. Lebowitz was a grumpy reactionary British man who just got divorced. But the funniest thing to me for that was that yes, John Cleese was credited as a writer on the special. But also, there are about 10 people, I'm not even kidding, it was a lot of people, credited on the special specifically for the opening 10 minutes of material about his ex-wife. <laughs> That's so funny, because yeah, it opens with 10 minutes about his ex-wife, and then it's 90 minutes of him just talking about Python and Faulty Towers and A Fish Called Wanda, the greatest hits of his career up until 1988. And the two sections of the show make for such an awkward combination there's that first 10 minutes of jokes about his ex-wife where like he shows 
a paparazzi photo of his ex-wife at an ATM machine. And and he says, this is my ex-wife helping herself to some of my money. And all of that, there's so much bile there. There's so yeah. much anger. And it sets the thing off on just such a strange note. And you're watching it like, gosh, sorry we bothered you by coming out tonight. Right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. like, okay, I mean, I get you're doing this for the money, but do you have to, like, make it so clear that you're doing it for the money? And yeah, then like, it's, and then after that, it's like Let's 70 see. or 80 minutes of the most tired anecdotes about his time in show business. Yeah, because John Cleese has never been a stand-up comedian. That's not what he does. <laughs> it's like the fucking, that tour that Charlie Sheen did when he was having that breakdown, and he just went around like, I don't don't know just doing a like uh, again another comparison like a klaus kinski jesus tour thing where just <laughs> he was just standing in the middle of a, an arena while people yelled at him but it was just it was just literally like that like okay people will pay to be in the same room as me and yeah he wrote most of it with just like one other guy but for that 10 minutes of material about his ex-wife he was like right i need the best i need a crack (laughs) team a writer's room of 10 of the highest paid comedy roast writers in hollywood my feeling about this is partly my own fault because i spent so much of my early life just reading about Monty Python and reading the same stories over and over again. But you watch the alimony tour. And again, after that first 10 minutes, it's just him doing well-trod stories of his career. And he starts talking about, we were filming Python and we went to a hotel in Torquay. And the manager was so unbelievably rude. uh, He told Terry Gilliam to stop cutting his steak this particular way. And I know he, the same story. And you're hearing that and you're like, I have heard this story 500 times and I've heard this story more than I've spent watching Faulty Towers, which is only 12 episodes. <laughs> and also hearing you recount it like that, I'm just thinking that is the exact shit that an 80 year old John Cleese would do. Were he in the restaurant of a hotel, not his yeah. hotel, but just a hotel and he saw someone cutting their steak in an uncouth manner, <laughs> he would let them know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But actually, last night I watched, well, I say I watched, I've seen all the sketches before, so I flicked through on Netflix the six episodes, or the five episodes by the then living members of Monty Python, of Monty Python's personal best, which I remember this shit coming out, so I was like shocked to discover this came out in like 2005. But it was a thing for, I think, PBS or something, some American channel, where each of the Pythons took it in turn, one per episode, to pick their favourite sketches from throughout the history of the show. So, like, Gilliam's one was all animation. And I have to say, for the little new bits that each member of the Python team did to introduce the episodes... Please put in the most effort of anyone. There must be something in him longing to be funny again. Because whereas the others, they like did one bit at the start and then it was just old sketches. Cleese's new bits were interspersed throughout the episode. He'd shot a lot of new material where he's playing himself as a like hundred year old senile similarly reactionary to how he is now it's quite a prophetic performance really but he must have shot quite a lot of material for it so yeah he's actually kind of funny on that i have to give him credit he's the only one out of all of them who's funny on that show the eric idle episode is pretty dire i mean weren't you longing for a spiritual successor to the ruttles too 
<laughs> yeah. Prizes for journalist character. Yeah, very poor. Terry Jones is, is I mean, I just find Terry Jones very likable. Mm. It's very low effort. Uh, <laughs> just, wasn't his that he just sort of stands in front of the camera and does like a very short monologue about, oh, I was the genius behind Monty Python and I created the show. And then it, it it's just that. That's all it is. Like he may, yeah, it may as well be a cameo video that he sent in. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. With a bit of that almost Eric Idle style humor of just like, how oh, we're the Pythons. We're all selfish bastards or whatever. And it's like, no, Terry, by all accounts, you're a very generous man. But there were a couple of bits I chuckled at. Like he took credit for one sketch in like one of his three interludes by saying he was doing an impression of Michael Palin or something. I don't know. Mm. It it doesn't sound funny when I relay it, but I I liked it. (laughs) And he and Michael Palin actually together put together one of the best post-Python projects, which is the TV show Ripping Yarns. Mm-hmm. they did back in the 70s there's a couple of series of that how well does the stuff that it's based on will translate to canada i don't know if you've seen ripping yarns i have seen ripping yarns i mean obviously i didn't grow up with some of that like british boys adventure stuff. exactly it's all like the adventure for but yeah, i mean I was gonna say the funny is Club funny it's still a show that has lots of great jokes on it and i love some of that early post python stuff because you really get to see what each member of the group brought to the team it's interesting to watch faulty towers and ripping yarns and jabberwocky there are these three things that are just like three different corners of a triangle they're very far apart from each other just in tone and sensibility and you put them all together and you get monty python in fact you mentioned jabberwocky we haven't really talked about terry gilliam much like cleese he's taken a bit of a reactionary turn in recent years he's very concerned with political correctness gone mad maybe that'll be the next python reunion the two of them get together in john cleese's channel 4 show about how it's funny that these guys are so concerned about political correctness because what has terry gilliam ever said before a few years ago that ever offended anyone like (laughs) i'm gonna spend this much money film studio to make this film (laughs) (laughs) he's offended many an executive in i mean i guess faulty towers (laughs) arguably has a stereotypical depiction of a foreigner maybe there's that But I don't know. Think about Brazil is I love Brazil, but it's this kind of ideology free movie. It's a movie that seems to be saying something very big about the world that we live in. But I don't think there's anything in there that would offend anyone on any part of the political spectrum. If you're Margaret Thatcher, you would watch that movie and say, yes, bureaucracy has run amok. We should cut it. (laughs) I like Brazil a lot. I mean, Mm. I think it's really great, actually. Yeah, same. Um, I love it, yeah. You're right for Margaret Thatcher could appreciate it, but then so could somebody who's a kind of anti-establishment leftist because Certainly. of the way that it portrays repression and how a labyrinthine system of oppression is maintained. And then he subsequently did 12 Monkeys, which is a fascinating example. It's like when Hollywood gave him a bunch of money and it worked pretty much Mm -hmm. i mean i'm sure it was an arduous production in many ways but it's a fantastic pulpy hollywood thriller but with all these terry gilliam elements like the way that he portrays the underground future society is pure brazil he didn't lose his soul by making a commercial movie in that case so i mean he's got at least two stone cold classics i think hey time bandits also gotta get oh time yeah bandits. i like munchausen as yes. well i think that's a very fun film yeah i do too recently 
he hasn't done much worth recommending. I thought that the man who killed Don Quixote, I mean, so anticlimactic. Yeah, it was pretty brutal. And I didn't like the Zero Theorem either, or really anything he's done since 12 Monkeys. And I think a problem with Terry Gilliam is there really was a limit to the number of ideas that he had. I don't know. I guess he's against bureaucracy. But ultimately, the thesis that's running through his films is we are all constrained by this society that we've built. We're constrained by work and the government and bureaucracy and whatever. And the solution is to retreat into a world of dreams. We need to look inward and we need to liberate ourselves within, even as we muddle through this brutal world, which I guess as far as ideas go, it's not the worst one, but it's, I think, been spread pretty thin across 30 years. Gilliam made one of the most righteous political statements of any of the Pythons when he renounced his American citizenship over the Iraq war and the policies of George W. Bush. Well, I think think he did it also because if he died, he would have had to pay estate taxes (laughs) in two countries. Okay, okay, that's some (laughs) Eric Idle shit. I take that back. Terry Jones is our anti-Iraq war hero. I think he remains unchallenged in that regard. He wrote a lot of stuff, I think for The Guardian mainly, about how he was opposed to the Iraq War. And in fact, Terry Jones' final film as a director is a Michael and Us-style political documentary. Well, sort of political, about the financial system and how neoliberalism isn't working. And, you know, I've said to you, I look forward to you guys eventually getting to that on the show, because it's a Michael and Us film. I'm intrigued to watch it. I'm curious, where exactly do you think he falls politically? Was he a socialist, do you think? Did he border on being a socialist? I'm just going to Google Terry Jones socialist. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I was wondering, that boom bust boom movie, did it seem like the work of a socialist? Or did it seem like the work of a sort of progressive liberal? That is a good question. I guess I'll find out when I watch it. It's weird. I mean, you get some wealthy, famous people who basically are sympathetic with socialism and then they still come out with rich guy shit. Like, Mm. uh, I listened to, again, (laughs) on Michael Moore's podcast, I listened to his interview with Roger Waters. Roger Waters, mostly very left-wing. Then he just comes out with this thing about how in Britain they hate wealthy people. I'm like, hang on. You're, like, supporting Jeremy Corbyn. What the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah, so I I don't know if it would be the case with Terry Jones. Apparently, Terry Jones... Oh, no, no, I I, I was like... was. Is this saying he was a scholar of Karl Marx? Because I know Terry Jones was big on history, but no, he played Karl Marx in at least one Monty Python sketch. So All I mean, right, I... good enough, good enough. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm calling it. He's a socialist. Yeah. ...privileged to have with us Karl Marx, the founder of modern socialism and author of the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> Vladimir Ilyich Yulianov, better known to the world as Lenin, leader of the Russian Revolution writer, statesman, and father of modern socialism. Che Guevara, the Bolivian guerrilla leader. And Mao Zedong, chairman of the Chinese Communist Party since 1949. And the first question is for you, Karl Marx. The Hammers. The Hammers is the nickname of what English football team? The Hammers. No? Well, bad luck, Carl. It is, in fact, West Ham United. <laughs> so now, with the scores all even, it's on to round two, and Lenin, your starter for $10. 
Jerry Lee Lewis has had over 17 major solid gold hits in the US of A. What's the name of the biggest? Jerry Lee Lewis's solid gold biggie. No? Yes, Matsitong. Right? Balls of fire? Yes, it was indeed. Very well challenged. Well, now we come on to our third round. Our contestant tonight is Karl Marx. Now, Karl has elected to answer questions on workers' control of factories. So here we go with question number one. You nervous, Karl? Just a little. Well, never mind, Karl. Have a go. The development of the industrial proletariat is conditioned by what other development? Uh, the development of the industrial bourgeoisie. Good, yes, it is indeed. Well done, Carl. You're on your way to your lounge suite. Now, Carl, number two. The struggle of class against class is a what struggle? A political struggle. Good, yes, it is indeed. Well done, Carl. One final question in that beautiful non-materialistic lounge suite will be yours. <laughs> Already, Carl? You're a brave man. Your final question. Who won the English Football Cup in 1949? Uh, the, the workers' control the means of production. The, the struggle of the urban proletariat. Uh, no, it was Wolverhampton Wanderers who beat Leicester 3-1. Oh, shit. Well, just, just, a, just a couple of words from Terry Jones in 2003. I'm really excited by George Bush's latest reason for bombing Iraq. He's running out of patience, and so am I. <laughs> so, yeah, we know where he stood on the Iraq war, I think. Okay, so he's basically doing this whole piece in sarcasm. But I remember the gist of that Boom Boom Bus documentary. It featured a lot of in vogue left-leaning people who might have been on the scene in 2015. So you had, for example, Paul Krugman, Obviously a major left-wing voice. Um, I kid, obviously, but Paul Krugman was at that time one of the most vocal voices challenging the narrative of austerity. Mm -hmm. The Guardian would regularly publish stuff by him that was far to the left on the economy, the vast majority of the stuff you would get in Britain. And then when Jeremy Corbyn was first running for Labour leader, Paul Krugman pretty much supported him in multiple columns in the New York Times and then still just did the same mad shit to Bernie like yeah. <laughs> he has violated my blood oath with Hillary Clinton so he must be stopped so you had people like Paul Krugman you had people like Paul Mason he makes an appearance in the documentary and <laughs> you might not be as familiar Will but he's a very eccentric British columnist who uh, he's on the left sometimes right. like he's just like one of the most erratic people on the, the yeah world, I was gonna say planet. on the broad left but yeah. in the world pretty much he's oh, got a new book done. about how to stop fascism where the cover of a book includes a big red stop fascism button <laughs> so this is the kind of heavyweight thought that Terry Jones was drawing upon but again compared to pretty much everyone talking about economics in Britain in 2015, Paul Mason was wildly on the left. You also have John Cusack, known for also being probably to the left of most public figures in 2015. So those are the ones I've heard of who he interviewed, but that should like give you a taste 
of what Terry Jones offered in his final film because he was around that time diagnosed with Alzheimer's and then he died a couple of years ago sadly. Yeah I think Terry Jones's post Python career stacks up pretty well. He's kind of an underrated Python but when you look at all the things he did not just directing the movies but also all the scholarship that he did and all these various Mm. TV specials, these documentaries about history. He seems like he was a pretty cool guy. Yeah, totally. He wrote some children's books that I think Mm -hmm. were quite popular and well-liked and seemed to have a finger in a lot of different pies. He was a bit of a renaissance man and he never wholly left comedy behind, but he very much diversified what he was doing. And even though he was suffering from the early signs of Alzheimer's at the time, not for we knew about that he was just realizing it the 2014 monty python show i enjoyed terry jones's performance a lot just i think he's a naturally funny guy there's this like really anarchic british television show that aired in like the early 2000s when i was quite young a children's tv show called dick and dom in the bungalow it was just (laughs) these two guys like making fart jokes and stuff it was funny if you're if you're very young you know um terry jones actually narrated uh what i'm guessing is a sort of fantasy quest kind of dick and dom spin-off called the legend of dick and dom he narrated that i guess they thought of him because of like the holy grail and stuff it (laughs) must be in that mode but terry jones's penultimate film as a director was called absolutely anything have you seen this one will yes i saw it during its one week theatrical run that it got here in toronto awful Uh, Yeah, not not very good. I mean, you say that he didn't depart comedy entirely, but I think you're wrong. I think he did. (laughs) In that film, certainly, yeah. It's got all the surviving pythons in there, but they're just doing voices, so they probably didn't even have to, like, get off their couch. Eric Idle probably recorded his by his pool in L.A., and Simon Pegg plays the lead. But Eric Idle actually wasn't going to be in it originally. The pythons all, again, reunited for a project in 2012 called A Liar's Autobiography, The Untrue Story of Monty Python's Graham Chapman which is sort of a film adaptation of Graham Chapman's autobiography. They basically found an unreleased audio book that he'd recorded of himself reading his largely fictional autobiography. So then a bunch of different animators took on different vignettes from this book with the pythons supplying most of the voices in addition to graham chapman's and to that i would just say give me the audiobook forget all that other shit because <laughs> it's dire when you watch all these animators try to do python-esque stuff i wouldn't be surprised if you've also seen that tv movie holy flying circus which is oh yeah written by one of the writers the thick of it Oh, okay. Well, of course, it's about the drama of the release of Life of Brian, and they've got all these actors playing the Pythons, and that and the Liar's Autobiography film both suffer from that really cringy thing of watching people try to do Python-esque comedy very deliberately. Mm. Absolutely painful. Did they manage to get a cameo from any of the actual Pythons in the life of Pythons? No! Sorry, so what I was thinking was, did Terry Jones play a woman in No, that, no, in that, but, the, but... No, the guy who played Terry Jones played Terry Jones's wife, or Michael Palin's wife, right? Yeah, and he actually looked more like Terry Jones in drag than he did <laughs> in men's clothes. But that is maybe one of the things about Python that a lot of people 
think hasn't aged so well, which is the portrayal of women. They even bring that up in the John Cleese. Uh, he has the interviewer bring that up in his Monty Python's personal best thing, that women in Monty Python are basically portrayed as like sex pots or screeching hags portrayed by the pythons themselves and they very much were just like hmm let's lean into the hag thing for the holy flying circus thing i think this might perhaps be a good time then to bring up the 2014 reunion show because Mm. it was certainly something i anticipated and dreaded very feverishly it's something that I really wanted when I was a kid, like fantasized, what if they reunited? And then Mm. it happened in 2014 because they all needed the money. (laughs) And seeing it was a very emotional experience. They broadcasted in theaters all over the world. They broadcast the last show. So I saw the last show on my birthday. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You saw it on your birthday. I saw it at a theater here in Toronto. Mm. And it was a very emotional experience on the one hand because I love these guys and I've been following them my whole life and it was so powerful to see them old and together and doing these sketches again but they're not funny anymore and there's something about reviving all of these sketches in the present day or in 2014 that underlines the dated aspect of them when you remove them from their context. Hey, hey, give Eric Idle the credit. He rewrote I Like Chinese to be mildly less racist. (laughs) It was mostly about how they're good at the economy now. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Do you remember... John Cleese sitting in sight fuming about the political correctness getting to his old friends. (laughs) Yeah. When you watch the original show and you see something like the military military fairy sketch where it's Mm. that line of soldiers who are doing like a really camp drill i think in 1969 there probably seemed something sort of radical about that we're taking this quintessentially british institution her majesty's military and we're making them gay and there's something, something powerful about that and then when you see it in 2014 It no longer feels that way. It just looks like a gay joke. Yeah, I'm just looking at the sketches and songs list on the Wikipedia page for Monty Python Live brackets mostly. That's another part of their cynical post-meaning of life shtick is making lots of jokes about how Graham Chapman's dead, which knowing what I know about him, I don't think he would have cared. Obviously, it's kind of a mute point whether someone would care about something when they're dead. I think that stuff's funny, personally. I like that of it is them being dead yeah 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 i don't care but it's just another side of we're making lots of money off this ha 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 kind of stick the exaggerated cynicism but what i was going to mention is that they have a thing called the retardis animation so the tardis obviously the thing that doctor who travels around in Mm -hmm. um but do you see eric idle added re on the front of it and he made made it rude you know he still got it yeah (laughs) that's so much of his fucking humor now is just these like awful puerile puns and shit like what about dick i don't want to derail i I think there's more to talk about with the python reunion but i watched his stage show what about dick which is on british netflix for some reason i don't know who this is for who would possibly enjoy this but (laughs) it's all 
jokes like retardis. That's the entire fucking thing. It's all sex <laughs> jokes. It's all dick jokes, but it's very Benny Hill kind of shit. Oh like, god, it's excruciating, honestly, man. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's an insult to the great Benny Hill for me to compare him <laughs> to Eric Idle's What About Dick? <laughs> yeah, nobody ran around at double speed. It was boring. Yeah, well, it's done like a radio play, isn't it? So they've got a guy doing sound effects live on stage, like Barbarian Sound Studio. <laughs> I found that a much more pleasurable experience, personally. Right, and like, it's a bunch of Eric Idle's celebrity friends, so Tracy Ullman and Russell brand and billy Connolly and eddie izzard all of them on stage reading from a script and doing funny voices oh uh, uh, yeah i was watching it like tracy tracy do your corbin impression where you just come out and just say something really really anti-semitic while yeah. wearing a gray wig yeah no it's awful yeah russell brand tim curry uh, he, yeah yeah tim curry's in it too yes he was in spam a lot at one point wasn't he so he's like eric idol's musical theater connection i mean i have to say i think one of the most pernicious influences in Eric Idle's career has been his collaboration with the historically bald John Dupre, uh, his his <laughs> songwriting partner, the guy who wrote all, well, I guess not all, because Eric Idle would say, oh, I wrote lots of the music for Spamalot and stuff. This guy has really made Eric Idle lean into the Vegas Broadway side of his personality, <laughs> having somebody to do the musical heavy lifting for him. John Dupre, who wrote the musical score to A Fish Called Wanda, which if you watch A Fish Called Wanda, the one element that ages really poorly is the music. <laughs> <laughs> Has all this like cool rock and 80s electric guitar and cool synth drum beat and all that. Midnight uh, run kind of stuff. <laughs> on the Monty Python reunion from 2014, just on the topic of how dated a lot of it seemed, do you remember that during the final bows, they brought out Carol Cleveland in a really skimpy and tight showgirl outfit to do her final oh, yeah. bow. And clearly it's supposed to communicate. Look at it. Carol Cleveland. She's still got it. 75 years old or however old she is. And she's still got it. But like you see it and you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Carol Cleveland was really only called upon to do that in the 70s. Wasn't <laughs> yeah, did they have her in any of the other sketches in this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she really only got to wear showgirls outfits back in the day. <laughs> Some of it is just so unbelievably tone deaf. Yeah, I just remember finding it really depressing. There were a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the sexy women in it. They had a lot of scantily clad dancers. Yeah, the scantily clad dancers combined with all the stuff of elderly 70-year-old pythons wearing dresses or they brought back what used to be called the puffy judges you remember that <laughs> sketch where it's eric idol and michael palin as judges who are gay and talking a really camp way they yeah, brought that yeah. back and they have of course the two of them wearing their underwear and their garters and you're watching that and it's like this sketch which probably seemed so subversive in 1972 now <laughs> it, it, it's literally the same as that other sketch it's just like hey you know the establishment they're gay they're gay <laughs> <laughs> a, a, you know, a powerful, a powerful gesture back then when the group still had a living gay member. Yeah, exactly. They don't have the plausible deniability. They don't have, oh, Graham's fine with this. Why aren't you? Yeah. And now it's just two old guys wearing women's underwear. And it feels like a sketch that you would see at the Legion during the Christmas party. <laughs> 
<laughs> I bet somebody John Cleese just saw a tweet one day that was just like Monty Python making jokes about wearing women's underwear is it and then that's why he signed that letter of support for JK Rowling over her transphobic oh, views actually all of that like him on transphobia if somebody said that they were hurt by that on a personal level I would believe that and I would respect that because there's something about Monty Python the fact that they did have a gay member in it an out gay member in Graham Chapman and the fact that so much of the comedy was them wearing dresses but not calling attention to it like you were just supposed to sort of accept them as women I can imagine people feeling betrayed when 40 years later Cleese does a million tweets that are like if I were to identify as a helicopter then would you respect that would you respect that identity it sort of suggests that oh yeah it was reactionary all along actually and if you thought it was cool and progressive and subversive in 1972 you were wrong yeah there was a fascinating piece in the times the other day don't often say that but i thought that this gave some really deep insights into transphobic mind disease so it was a piece written by an arch enemy of our podcast sarah ditton someone who really hates uh she wrote a piece about what cunts we are uh, what 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 misogynistic <laughs> bastards we are i mean in spot the lie <laughs> when the daily mail was going for us i think she just wrote it on her blog but she published it on this, yeah this was actually praxis because it's like one of the only things she's published in the last five years that wasn't just gunning for <laughs> yeah yeah she, <laughs> so... she briefly took her focus off them she, <laughs> She published it on my birthday. I don't know if she knew (laughs) that, but like the rest of the media had literally just stopped having a go at us. And then she was just like, fuck these guys and just wrote this long ass piece. It was just on her website, though. Who the fuck reads like (laughs) saradittum.co.uk? So her transphobic mate, Janice Turner, was taking the week off from her Times column. Also, I just want to point out briefly bad shit keeps happening on my birthday whether it's sarah ditton deciding to put the boot in on sarahditton.co.uk or it is the monty python reunion special which left me (laughs) thoroughly depressed it took the entire night with the intermission and shit and waiting for it to come on in the theater i just by the end i was just thinking is this what i'm doing with my life like my birthday i've ended up here but anyway janice turner was taking the week off from her column in the times so she gave it to sarah ditton an equally repugnant career transphobe so Sarah Ditton used this column it was a spirited defense of John Cleese she (laughs) says what does earn Cleese the right to an opinion because she clarifies that yes okay John Cleese is a bit cranky and stuff now blah blah not for his views on trans people obviously she supports them what does earn Cleese the right to an opinion is the fact he spent his whole career bumping up against the limits of the sayable in comedy in those two minutes of die another day he made from count you know some lenny bruce shit yeah <laughs> his whole career have you seen anything by john cleese since does a fish called wonder even bump up against the limits of the sayable in comedy yeah it's great comedy but is it challenging the mores of polite society i mean perhaps some of the blackface on monty python's (laughs) flying circus does now (laughs) (laughs) she sort of reveals why she's come out in such spirited defense of john cleese here saying 
Cleese has been consistent in his principles, right through his principles, right <laughs> through to last year when he signed a letter in support of J.K. Rowling's right to speak about gender. <laughs> Fuck off. And also, how is that consistent with his principles? Like, his principles in, like, 1997 were like, vote Lib Dem, let's not have taxes too high under Tony Blair. I, I do think that there's something funny going about? on with that entire generation of British comedians where in the 70s they were all like staunchly anti-censorship and they were all making fun of what was that woman's name from the festival of light mary mary whitehouse yeah Yeah, mary whitehouse there were all these i guess blue noses in the uk who felt that you needed to get the filth off tv and malcolm muggeridge saying that life of brian should be banned and all these comedians were against that and now they still think they're fighting that battle they still think it's the same battle and really it's just them defending somebody of their exact same social class who wants to tweet about trans people and not get any pushback yeah and sarah Dyson writes here when graham chapman came out publicly in a 1972 tv interview british homophobia was at full strength the press freely printed slurs she says in her friend's column in a major british newspaper that functions primarily as an outlet to attack a vulnerable minority in the modern day equivalent of the past moral panics around gay people (laughs) it's absolutely astonishing yeah then she attacks robin ince who was actually a collaborator of eric idol he worked with him on his recent what's it called will the space thing Oh God! Brian that, Cox. Um, it's called the entire universe. That's right. A year or two ago, <laughs> Eric Idle was given an hour on, I think, the BBC to just do whatever he wanted, and so he did this comedy special with your favorite public intellectual, Professor Brian Cox, where they <laughs> talked about the universe and the science of the universe while also doing hilarious jokes. And I haven't seen it. I've seen the trailer many times because the trailer just feels like this distillation of so much of what I dislike in culture. It has Uh, that kind of corny, liberal, I fucking love science smugness to it. Like when Stephen Hawking cameoed in the Monty Python reunion show in a pre-recorded segment, Stephen Hawking does the Galaxy song or whatever. Is it just like that, but an hour long? Yeah, and Eric Idle is one of those kind of smug, annoying, Ricky Gervais atheist types. Of course he is. One of those people who's kind of like, well, who would care about God when you could look at the whole universe and how cool it is and listen to all these facts, you know, just remember that you're standing on a planet that's evolving like that, which is obviously like a very liberal, like a very rich lib, short-sighted way to look at religion. What I was saying about that song earlier, it's kind of clever, but it's not really that funny. No. I mean, maybe the punchline at a push. No, it's no Weird Al Yankovic, to be sure. (laughs) But it's just like Eric Idle just leafing through the Python back catalogue. Like, okay, I need something for this hour of BBC television. (laughs) What Monty Python thing can I adapt for this somehow? There's something in the trailer for that entire universe special that the reason I've watched the trailer so many times is for this gag where it's three people dressed as the Bee Gees, including Warwick Davis. And they're singing, <laughs> gra, 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 gravity. 
And there's something so brutally unfunny about that. I've watched the trailer and just gone back and just repeatedly watched that. I don't know why. It just It's just such a direct hit of so much of what I hate that there's something very powerful and intoxicating about it. <laughs> yeah, so Brian Cox, from what I've heard, I think his wife is reputed to have very anti-trans views. I don't know about Brian Cox himself. Oh, it's not reputed. She's literally called for... Just being uh, legally careful, Brian. Could... <laughs> I mean, she's called for... If you can detect trans markers in unborn babies, they should oh be aborted. Oh my god. Whoa. Like, that's, that's something she's tweeted fuck. publicly. Okay. And, okay, uh, well, fuck Professor Brian Cox and his corny <laughs> twee bullshit and fuck his wife. That's what I say. <laughs> yeah, 100%, man. Um, but, like, yeah. Robin Ince is also in that. He's a British comedian. We have a mutual friend with him in Josie Long, another comedian. They used to have a podcast. I'm not sure if they still do. But recently, he said some stuff in support of trans people. And sure enough, he is one of the comedians singled out by Sarah Ditton in her John Cleese piece. Like, I guess he said something about John Cleese getting more reactionary as he's getting older. And she's like, he thinks that age disqualifies him from having an opinion. It's just unbelievably transparent. Thankfully, he doesn't seem to be a Brian Cox. I was going to ask on the Eric Idle front, Will, have you seen either of these two films from the 90s? Splitting Airs or Burn Hollywood Burn, an Alan Smithy film. I'm glad you asked because I have seen both of those films. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, Splitting Airs, which famously played in competition at the Cannes Film Festival representing Britain. <laughs> And it played a month after it came out theatrically around the world. So it had already flopped. And then <laughs> there it played at the Palais. So Written a jury. By Eric that, Idol. Yeah, a jury that included Claudia Cardinale and Louis Mal and Amir Costa Rica <laughs> all sat down and watched Splitting Airs together and considered and they were it like, palm. Palm door, baby. Here you go. <laughs> I mean, so I'm not the first person to observe this about splitting airs. I think Roger Ebert mentioned it in his review, among others. But the plot Your spiritual of spiritual forefather as a critic. Well, I mean, I'm kind of the reincarnated Roger Ebert. Everyone. Well, that's that. how you get all his opinions to post on Twitter. <laughs> that's right. But splitting airs is about these two twins who were separated at birth, and one of them becomes the heir to like the British crown or something. I can't quite remember. <laughs> and the other one becomes a bum and the heir to the british crown is rick moranis oh no right they're not twins they were just switched as babies so rick moranis is an obnoxious american but somehow he's grown up to become the heir to this british fortune not rightfully and the whole thing would be funnier everyone understands the thing would be funnier if eric idol were the one who grew up as the assumed heir and rick moranis had to <laughs> usurp it I mean, it's it's yeah. just so basic, but that's not what the movie is. That's not how it plays out. It ends up being about how Eric Idle, the polite, respectable British person, has to restore his rightful place in society that has been taken from him at birth by this obnoxious American who, for some reason, despite growing up in Britain, has an American accent and just behaves like an American. <laughs> I guess Eric Idle <laughs> yeah. believes that it's nature more than nurture. Yeah, I mean, for all John Cleese's role in the classic Frost Report sketch about the British class system where he is 
the upper class because he's taller than <laughs> the two yeah. Ronnies. You do get some kind of, I guess it's just kind of like rich guy, John Cleese, Lib Dem, SDP kind of both sidesism. But, you know, in the John Cleese, Monty Python's personal best stuff, he goes off on a thing about, I bloody hate the working class and the upper class. Yeah. It's like a lot of Python does seem to be coming from a distinctly bourgeois perspective. But then I think if they've got richer, that has often leaned into you know rich people kind of deserve their money i think they are sort of free form anti-authoritarian i don't sense a strong politics in python which is fine obviously but yeah they're also university boys they're oxford and cambridge boys and that certainly informs their perspective yeah i just want to point out that in splitting airs eric idol plays tommy patel has grown up in an Asian-slash-Indian family in Southall, never doubting his ethnicity despite being taller than anyone else in the house, fairer-haired, blue-eyed, light-skinned, and not liking curry. That's just a joke that he stole from The Jerk, the Steve Martin film, where in The Jerk it has that famous joke, I was born a poor black child. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I, I bet they get a lot of mileage out of that, his supposed Indian background. As for an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn, which I guess is Eric Idle's last starring role to date in an American film, that one was notable because, for anyone who doesn't know, Alan Smithy used to be the name that if a director, a member of the Directors Guild, argued that the movie was taken away from him or her and severely compromised, they could have their name taken off at and be credited to Alan Smithy. And so the film... Bring it back. Yeah. In the film, <laughs> Eric Idle plays a filmmaker who this happens to him and he wants to have his name taken off the film. But his name is Alan Smithy. His real name oh. is Alan Smithy. And the sort of funny thing that happened during the making of it was that the actual director of that film, Arthur Hiller, apparently the film was taken away from him. So he successfully petitioned the Directors Guild to have his credit changed to Alan Smithy. So the film actually was an Alan Smithy film. And they swear up and down that this was not a publicity stunt. <laughs> Do you think he was just like, look, this would be really funny, telling the Guild, and they're like, you know, it would be quite funny. Okay. <laughs> well, the Guild actually retired the Alan Smithy name after that movie because they figured, well, this movie's come out, the cat's out of the bag. Alan Smithy will be known in households across the land. <laughs> well, when you've the, got an Eric Idle, Ryan O'Neill comedy that's playing, everybody's going to see it. And yeah, that oh, movie's man. fucking terrible. <laughs> Star-studded crew, though, as well as Eric Idle in the lead. You've got Joe Estehaz writing the script, the author of Heaven and Mel, among yes. other works. <laughs> Arthur Hiller was responsible for some pretty good films. See No Evil, Hear No Evil with Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. I mean, Silly film, but What's good. most notable about an Alan Smithy film, Burn, Hollywood Burn, is I believe it contains a rare acting role by Harvey Weinstein, who plays a private oh. detective in the film. So check it out for that. <laughs> wow, yeah, looking at the cast, you've got Stallone, that's Sylvester, not Frank. You've got Whoopi Goldberg, Jackie Chan, Robert Evans, the film producer. Didn't he, like, kill someone or something? Uh, I think you dude? may be thinking of Phil Spector. No, I know Phil Spector yeah, <laughs> killed someone. Oh, why, oh, why? yeah. You're thinking of, was it the Cotton Club scandal? I forget exactly what the details of that were. Somebody died involved in the making of the movie The Cotton Club. And I forget, uh, I, I'm not going to accuse Robert Evans of murder on the podcast because I can't <laughs> remember what the details of the story are. <laughs> 
he's definitely guilty of cocaine trafficking, but I'll give him a break on that. And yeah, yeah, there is a Cotton Club murder section on his Wikipedia. But yeah, I won't hold the cocaine trafficking against him. You've got Gavin Pallone, who I basically know is just like a guy who directed a lot of episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Didn't know he was an actor. Chuck D. Coolio. Ryan O'Neal. MC Light. What's with the hip-hop figures in this film? Well, I uh, remember that I think Chuck D and Coolio played a pair of characters called the Brothers Brothers, who were inspired by the Hughes Brothers, who made Menace to Society. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's just like... That's an example of the kind of cutting-edge humor that you'll find in Burn Hollywood Burn. <laughs> yeah, you know, this has got a lot of industry people in it. Shane Black, Joe Esterhaz himself appears in it, Peter Blatt, no, Peter Bart. I was going to make a mall cop joke there. Never mind. Billy Bob Thornton and Norman Jewison appears uncredited. The Journeyman director, who me and Yair did two episodes on the oeuvre of. Not a good film, Will? No, it's terrible. Although, as I hear you say that cast list, I'm almost tempted to watch it again. Just, yeah, just yeah I, like, I've got to see this God, all now. those... Like, Norman Jewison is in it? I don't remember that. I want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to see that Jewison cameo. He's yeah. the guy gets bums on seats, cast Jewison in your film. One thing that I didn't think you were aware of, but I brought up to you, and you immediately went and told your Michael and us co-host and good friend of real politic, Luke Savage, about, was a TV series that Michael Palin did in the early 90s. And we've been talking a little bit about the politics of Python. And Michael Palin's post-Python output, mostly fairly inoffensive travel documentaries. I know some people might describe them as kind of like Orientalist or Colonialist. Was it you, Will, who said that you think he would be really upset to hear that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's possibly a fair criticism you could level against them, but I think Michael Palin would say that he's just trying to open Western viewers' eyes to all the cool stuff that's in the world, which I guess is a fair enough defense. Yeah, no, I, I, I will just say, if you don't want people to call you a colonialist, don't become a commander of the Order of the British Empire. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, Michael Palin, I love him. I think he's a great talent. I've got all three of his volumes of published diaries, and I enjoy them very much. He seems like a nice man. He seems to keep his politics pretty close to the vest. He seems to me like a pretty typical Guardian reader type, mm. and that's fine. Whatever. He's not out there on Twitter talking about trans people. I, I can't like Eric Idle. Yeah, I mean, I would be very surprised if Michael Palin, who at this point resides in the absolute upper echelon <coughs> of British society, right now he can go anywhere, he can do anything he wants, he knows everybody. I do not believe he is probably a big Jeremy Corbyn guy, but uh, he, <laughs> he hasn't said anything about it, and I'm fine with that. That's absolutely fine, yeah. But he did at one point get involved to an extent in internal Labour Party politics. This was in the seven-part British television drama GBH, which aired on Channel 4, <laughs> the home of John Cleese's new political correctness gone mad documentary in 1991. <laughs> so in this, you have Robert Lindsay as Michael Murray playing the hard left Labour leader of a city council in the north of England. Basically, the militant tendency. 
Derek Hatton. Well, he was the deputy leader of Liverpool City Council, actually, Derek Hatton, but he was, like, public enemy number one for Labour centrists and right-wingers. He was seen as basically everything about the trot-hard left that they hated. Alright, how would you describe the conflict over the militant tendency to somebody from outside the UK like Will? The actual conflict, or as it was depicted in the Well, we'll get to GBH in a second. Just give a little bit of historical uh, context here for this conflict. So it was a left-wing group within the Labour Party that were very much quite well-organised and quite good at winning a lot of the positions within CLPs and things like that, regional branches of the party and therefore basically as soon as Neil Kinnock got in as leader replacing Michael Foote in the late 80s his immediate priority was just in 83 right sorry yes yes 83 yeah yeah in 83 when he replaced Michael Foote his immediate priority was basically let's prescribe these bastards did so and they had a very thorough attempt to chuck him out of the party, which included chucking sitting MPs out of the party on quite tenuous grounds and they almost used to have disciplinary panels for people they were trying to expel at the time. There's there's some quite detailed accounts of these in progress in Tony Benn's diaries from the time. Mm. They'd get rid of a lot of them, and to make sure they did, they would literally be like, you've been seen speaking to some of these leftists at your local meetings, therefore you're under suspicion and we think you're a member and we might chuck you out It's quite similar to what's happening Um, in the Labour Party now. Yes, like, oh, you've been involved with this group who we tenuously claim are anti-Semitic, you Mm. shared a platform with them two years ago, you're out of the party. Yeah, it is the same process they've used to, for example, a couple of weeks ago, Chuck Kane Loach out of the party. But Fucking outrage! I guess it was on a wider scale, and I guess without the internet for people to put the other side across, there was less defence against it as well. Yeah, so like through. Neil Kinnock prescribing the militant tendency from the Labour Party has become this totemic thing for the Labour right in terms of how we Fuck, crush yeah. the left. Like they're obsessed with this fucking speech that Neil Kinnock did, where he's like, mm. "Taxi is driving around the city, laying off Labour councillors." <laughs> it's like some shit. <laughs> it's not laying off Labour councillors; it's like laying off public servants. But yeah, yeah it, it's they, like literally, you need to remind these people that Neil Kinnock fought two elections across a almost decade long period and never became prime minister like he lost (laughs) yeah that whole thing is oh well we only don't like corbyn because he's not electable you see for the most part but also i idolized neil kinnock and think he was brilliant and wish everyone would be like neil kinnock and his amazing speech yeah pick one you know he was a he was a loser loser noted as a loser until the exact moment Corbyn got on the back. <laughs> yeah, so GBH is like a hardline Kinnockite television drama <laughs> written by Alan Bleasdale, who was the writer of the excellent series Boys from the Black Stuff, which was one of the most vivid and realistic depictions of working class life ever to be on British television up to that point, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. It's aged very well for the most part as well. It still stands up today. And there's only a few years between the two series, wasn't there? Yeah, really? but I think it's fair to say fair to say which side he was on over the whole militant thing. Because this series, I mean, Michael Palin, I was going to say he's good in it, but I mean, actually, <laughs> he does his nice shtick. It's Michael Palin at his nicest. 
and it gets really annoying. He's just like this totally innocent, benevolent, lovely guy who's just constantly being like terrorized by these hard left thugs. Yeah. They'll like come round to his house and just like steal his lunch money and dangle him upside <laughs> down by his trousers and stuff. It's hilarious. The left in it are depicted literally like the mafia. And Michael Palin is just like this kind, good hearted labor moderate who, you know, just wants why can't we all get along? Obviously, uh, getting along involves the left being totally marginalised and treated as illegitimate, but we're very much supposed to identify with Michael Palin's cuck-centrist <laughs> rather than the alpha Chad legend played by Robert Lindsay. It's an absolutely false choice as well, because do you want these slightly unruly, these unruly horrible leftists, or do you want nice Michael Palin and like <laughs> have you seen every Labour right MP from the 60s through to the present yeah. day they're not Michael Palin they're not Michael Palin talking about centrist politics like <laughs> they're Ian Austin and Tom Watson and Tom Blenkinsop and all these little psychopaths. Yeah, they're, they're far more repulsive than even an evil Robert Lindsay I mean, yeah. Robert Lindsay is very charming. <laughs> like, he's representing our evil politics in this. So I was feeling his character. And for all the people like me here tonight, for all those of us who refuse to learn about life from manifestos and Marx and Das Kapital, because that's your problem for me, you boys, isn't it? You've only read one book. <laughs> you must have read that book and thought, right, that'll do for me, that's the book for me. I know about life now. Why not read two books? Read three. Get a rounded view of life instead of the flat earth version. You may come to the same conclusions you did from reading that one book. But is there any harm in knowing other things? But you're only the puppets. And it's the puppet master I really want to examine. Because here we all are living under the most reactionary, democratically elected government we've ever known, in a labour-controlled city where all animals are equal, but some councillors are more equal than others, where too often lions are led by donkey jackets, living proof that the further left you go, the more right-wing you become. It's just quite funny. I mean, watching it, especially in the retrospect of the way that people on the British Centre talk about the very recently ex-union leader, Len McCluskey, who I was a big supporter of, as just being this bruiser, this thug, because he has a working class accent and is uncompromising in his left-wing views. Or even how they talk about Jeremy Corbyn. They're able to inflate the most mild-mannered, softly spoken, polite, kind individual into this monster. Like Conor McGinn, like, oh, Jeremy Corbyn been talking about niceness in politics. This guy is a Labour MP and he complained publicly that Jeremy Corbyn bullied him by threatening to call his dad on him. <laughs> That's how they view the left. Vaguely implied that he was going to use Sinn Féin connections as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, Corbyn and really... my dad used to be in the IRA together and they're going to do a repeat <laughs> of the Warrington bombing on me. <laughs> it's effectively that. Am I, am I right in thinking that GBH is considered kind of a classic in Britain, you know, a classic of the form. <laughs> Not by me. <laughs> <laughs> Not by us, but it's got good reviews. It's cited in great drama lists and stuff, but 
It's absolutely not Bleasdale's. It's by it's ironically funny. You and Luke should watch it. Especially, I, I would. Lo- if you I would can't love take to. it. Luke should just plow on and watch it all on his own because I think he'd get a lot out of it. I mean, I think it combines a lot of things that I like, so I'm eager to watch it. I imagine we want to wrap this up soon. This has been an incredibly in-depth, extensive chat about late Monty Python, which is exactly <laughs> what I wanted to do. There's maybe just a couple more projects to briefly touch on. So Michael Palin actually made a return to acting. Let's just say that A Liar's Autobiography of the Untrue Story of Monty Python's Graham Chapman, Monty Python Live mostly, and absolutely anything don't count as returns to acting for Michael Palin. But he did a few things, so he did this kind of quite corny, low-budget horror thing on ITV, which he was quite good in. And then he also did The Death of Stalin by another friend of a show. No, I mean, <laughs> we've never directly engaged with Armando Inucci, but we certainly don't agree with his politics. But he directed The Death of Stalin in 2017. Which Soviet figure did he cast Michael Palin as in that again? Oh, Molotov. God. Right, right, Molotov. I thought Michael Palin was very funny in The Death of Stalin. Same. It was just great to see him back. It was great to see him being funny. I don't think he had really had much of an opportunity to be funny since A Fish Called Wanda. It was great mm. to know that he could still do it. Yeah, he still had it in that film. And I really like that film. I know some of our more stalinist leaning comrades had big problems with the movie but it's such a great cast so many funny people you know the problematic jeffrey tambor he's very funny paul whitehouse very funny steve buscemi very funny i like that film a lot i like jason isaacs in it too and yeah palin was excellent there's not been much else to see him and find him funny in other than that recently apparently he was in the simpsons last year oh i actually did not know that that's interesting but yeah it was nice to see him in the death of stalin because it was just nice to see a python involved in something that felt kind of current and relevant and spoke to the present moment regardless of what ianucci's politics are off screen and of the standard that you would expect from comedy legends you know mm-hmm. there's so few films like that that you watch is just like yeah that's funny that's good in the python's post python career and a lot of people take a downturn in their career but it's just remarkable with these guys but they're all pretty much some of the funniest people of all time I don't know if Gilliam necessarily counts as one of the funniest people of all time. He's certainly a very talented person who artistically has had a lot going for him. I'm very interested to watch He Dreams of Giants, the film about his latest attempt to make Don Quixote. I'm sure it's a more interesting film than the actual man who killed Don Quixote. (laughs) But it is just quite remarkable how unfunny the vast majority of the stuff that all these guys have done, considering how good what they did before is. It's not just like they settled into averageness, churning out a long-running... I mean, Cleese, I know, appeared on a sitcom or two. Third Rock from the Sun, I think. Will and Grace, maybe? Or was that Eric Idle? Was he not recently the co-lead on a British sitcom? I think it was called Hold the Sunset. It was a corny British sitcom about a grown man having to return home to live with his parents. God, that would suck. Couldn't be me. Ha 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 ha. (laughs) I thought that looked awful, yeah. There's certain publications in Britain that I don't know who buys them, but they're just like basically these magazines entirely about what's on TV. I guess the classiest option of those is the Radio Times. And definitely when I went to the corner shop, I saw that in there, like John Cleese looking very old next to his co-star and thought 
well, I'm not watching that. <laughs> that looks really, really unfunny. That is, again, not of the standard of somebody who was in a show like Faulty Towers. I think maybe something about the Python guys is they were never able to find the second generation, the people who can help them keep creating good stuff. And no, John Dupre doesn't count. I mean, for example, Alan Partridge, everything that Steve Coogan does as Alan Partridge, I think, is of a consistent standard. It doesn't really slip. Maybe I didn't like the film as much as some of the other Partridge stuff, but overall, it's all funny. And that's largely because a few years ago, Steve Coogan found these two new writers who can get inside the voice Mm -hmm. and who with him still, so he's still involved in it and he's still keeping it true to the original vision, But 30 years later, Alan Partridge is still funny because he was able to find ways to keep it relevant and to inject new blood, new life into it. I think it was great to see Michael Palin in The Death of Stalin because, yeah, it felt like a successful melding of the style of comedy that he was doing in the late 60s, early 70s with the generation immediately after him the Armando Iannucci generation. It was great to see him fit into that era rather than his era of comedy being sort of like vacuum sealed and the way that it was in the Monty Python reunion show. I'll also just say that in regards to how they've aged, I think Michael Palin and Terry Jones have had the most dignified late periods because even though they haven't had or they didn't have all that much really funny to do since the end of the 1980s, they've almost had a sort of Steve Martin-ish late career where they don't do a lot of comedy, but they go and do all sorts of other things that are interesting to them. Yeah, it's like, would you prefer it if they were doing crappy Eric Idle style comedy? Yeah. Or would you prefer Michael Palin to show up as a butler in a bunch of bad American comedies? (laughs) Yeah, like I say, it's sad that John Cleese just stopped trying after Fierce Creatures. And even that, that was quite a few years after A Fish Called Wanda. He took a big break after (laughs) writing that film. But on the other hand, that has probably saved us some crappy john cleese written material (laughs) that's right well i guess he's doing a special about cancel culture now so maybe he's proving me wrong he's done these documentaries before for tv and stuff like john cleese on wine whatever like yeah john cleese on wine i'm sure he is most of the fucking time given the (laughs) shit he talks but yeah i mean one person we didn't really address because sadly he never got old really because he died aged 48 Graham Chapman. So there's a few projects after The Meaning of Life where Graham Chapman tried to get something done. A lot of the time he just did speaking tours of American colleges, as far as I understand, which given the stuff that people, including the other Pythons, have said about his proclivities with very young men, it's quite concerning, actually. Literally occurred to me just there. No, literally, Terry Gilliam, on one of the 2014 reunion Python interviews, basically just heavily implies that Graham Chapman's a paedophile. Yikes. Um, it's like, wow, really guarding the legacy there, Terry. <laughs> well, I guess maybe it's good that Graham Chapman didn't live long enough to be me too I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He actually made one fascinating piece of work in 1988, I think, 
which is mainly of interest because it was the last ever work not just of graham chapman but of hal ashby the great director so this was a pilot called jake's journey i've looked it doesn't count as a full ashby joint really because it was only 25 minutes long but this does exist to my knowledge i don't think it's publicly available though the plot of jake's journey is a teenage boy time travels back to the middle ages he meets george a knight and they embark on a quest together and graham chapman plays sir george and also the Queen, <laughs> so in a bit of classic Python casting, and a taxi driver. It also stars a lot of famous British comedians and comedy actors. Peter Cook, the late Rick Mayle, sadly no longer with us. Alexi Sale, who is one of the soundest British comedians politically. <laughs> he plays head torturer. You got Liz Smith, again, the late Will Smith. Will Smith? Liz Smith. There is actually a British comedy actor called Will Smith who plays that Tory spad in the thick of it. Griff Reese Jones and Tony Slattery. So you've got quite a lot of well-known people in that, but although the script is available, I don't know if the actual pilot is, but the kind of thing that fascinates me because it's just like, A, it was the only work that Hal Ashby could get at that point. In the early 80s, Neil Young and the Stones were employing him to make concert movies and then no one seemed to be employing him. <laughs> I'd kind of like to see that. There's another Graham Chapman pilot from the 70s as well, I think, called Out of the Trees, which was a collaboration with Douglas Adams, the writer of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, who Chapman wrote a lot of stuff with. He did have a film vehicle as well, which, yeah, Will, I feel like you may have seen, called Yellowbeard. Yes, I have seen Yellowbeard. That's the only post-Python Graham Chapman project I have much familiarity with. And, I mean, it's awful, it's really boring, and it's not funny, <laughs> but it's just sort of interesting as this, I guess, artifact of comedy in the early 80s because there are three pythons in it there's mm. john cleese and eric idle there's also a lot of the mel brooks repertory troupe like maybe not peter boyle but marty feldman is in it and madeline Kahn and a few others mm. maybe peter boyle's in it i can't remember feldman was an old collaborator of theirs from doing pre-python tv shows in the 60s right at last the 1948 show for instance and then mm. also presumably because they needed them to get the money there's cheech and chong who are in it <laughs> yeah I, you know i've always thought terry jones and michael palin they're just these weak links in the monty python team what you need is two good time weed smoking <laughs> fellas to stand in yeah you've got peter cook david bowie as the shark don't remember that at all there's a documentary called group madness it's like 30 minutes long <laughs> about the making of yellow beard and it's from the time it's a puff piece promo documentary from the time and it's kind of worth watching it's clear from watch get that everybody had a very good time making yellow beard none of which translated onto the screen uh, <laughs> and i highly recommend watching it just to soak in the good vibes of you know, hanging out with the Mel Brooks crew, hanging out with some of the Pythons, hanging out with David Bowie. Smoking up with Cheech and Chong. That's right. right. I mean, that feels like one of the few films that it was at least a post-Python attempt to do something a bit like a Python film. Something like, well, we're good at this. Why shouldn't we keep on churning out these films, even if it's just on our own or with the others doing cameos or whatever. Obviously didn't work, but well done to Graham Chapman for trying. <laughs> Sorry, Geraint, George Eaton just messaged me to say he's gone on an Oasis podcast. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. 
you're radicalizing your centrist friends in the wrong way. You're just getting, yeah. you're bringing them over to your Britpop views where you're supposed to be continuing his path to the hard left. <laughs> oh well, you know, I, I'm excited to listen to that. You take the wins where you can. Get. <laughs> yeah. Oh fuck. Okay. I know. I want to let you go, Will. I'm gonna let you. F- no. Uh, I'm a, I'm a not let you finish because I want us to address 1999's Python Night. Oh so, God! Yeah, thank you, thank you for bringing this up. I was about to lose steam, but now I'm back <laughs> in. <laughs> my my whole life, I've wanted to talk to uh, Python Night. Talk 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 to Python Night. Yeah, just sitting up talking to my television, going increasingly mad as I watch 1999's Python Night for the 28th time. God, I think I remember that. Was that a BBC? Oh yeah, thing? yeah, yeah. BBC Two, 9th of October 1999, to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the first broadcast yeah. of Monty Python's Flying Circus, featured a reunion of Monty Python. Apart from Eric Idle. I'm sure I watched that when it was originally broadcast. Eric Idle was pissed at all the other guys for some reason and refused to do it. He just did one sketch that he like filmed in his fucking living room or something where he's just sitting there talking about Monty Python being a character. He was upset with them because he had spent a year trying to organize a 30th anniversary reunion tour. A big mega box tour that would have taken them, you know, all over the United States and made them a bunch of money. But then... The Pythons decided they actually didn't want to do it. There's no way they would have wanted to do that. Yeah. I mean, I guess they might have strung him along a little bit. Anyway, he was very pissed, and so he didn't want to take part in the BBC reunion show that they decided to do. And yeah, Python Night, well, I mean, when I saw it when I was 11 years old, because they released it on DVD over here, I thought it was very funny. I thought it was (laughs) great to see the gang back together. Didn't Mm -hmm. have the most discriminating tastes, I gotta say. (laughs) Eric Idle actually had a really good burn of it. He did an interview where he said that the whole thing was like a John Cleese commercial. (laughs) Wow, as opposed... And and so he has spent the subsequent 20 years endeavouring to make every single Monty Python product just an Eric Idle commercial to get back at Cleese. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's wrong on a lot, but, you know, a stopped clock, right? (laughs) (laughs) So the sketches that I remember off the top of my head, one where there's a little mouse running about by the BBC2 ident... And then Terry Jones starts hitting it with a hammer. There's a parody of the British game show Masterminds, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's on there. There's a bit where they're dressed as gorillas. Eddie Izzard is in it, I think. She actually kind of stands in for Eric Idle. Right. And there's a new South Park version of the Dead Parrot sketch. That's so incredibly 99. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) The thing about that whole thing is, like, you you see them doing these sketches, and obviously the magic is kind of gone. The timing is just a little bit off. Everyone's a little too old. And it's obviously them imitating the style of 1969. And Mm. it doesn't work. When they were doing the original show, they were on the cutting edge of comedy. They were trying to discover comedy, basically. They were trying to do stuff for the first time. And then when it's guys in their late 50s or early 60s trying to recreate the magic of 30 years ago, it just makes you realize you can't go home again. The one iconic joke from this for me is the bit at the end. I say iconic literally just to me. I've never heard anyone else reference this. But when they say that was the end of Monty Python, the BBC is now closing down forever (laughs) i thought that was a big dick move like we are the bbc but i think 
I prefer Python Night to the 2014 reunion show. Just a nice, quiet, BBC budget kind of thing. Like, that's so much preferable to me than the Eric Idle light entertainment spectacular of the 2014 reunion show. And they managed to get, you know, Eric did his sketch. He, he was in there, not with the others. But then he also was the sole dissenting Python when they did the Graham Chapman animated movie, so I wonder what they'd done to piss him off then, because they all seem to star in his shitty Life of Brian oratorios and stuff. I remember following that at the time. I think they were feuding over Spamalot royalties. <laughs> Wow. Did you ever watch Not the Messiah? He's a very naughty boy. Oh, not only did I watch it, I attended the very first performance of it. He debuted it. (laughs) Eric Idle debuted it here in Toronto in, I think, 2006, I want to say, maybe 2007. This man thinks he's the Rolling Stones, honestly. (laughs) And he did it here because his cousin is or was the conductor of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. So he had a connection here. And I had a great time, you know, it was great to see Eric Idle in person. But yeah, not the Messiah, more like not essential. (laughs) Wow, that's scathing. And I mean, was it on the, the musical comedy level of the Rutland Isles CD? I mean, what I remember about it is there's a part where he does a Bob Dylan impression. And it's the corniest. As he does on the Rutland Isles. Oh, does he do Bob Dylan on the Rutland Isles? He does indeed. Bob Dylan referenced them. All those politicians with their crinkly smiles Looking like an aerial map of the Rutland Isles All those politicians, they're mean and they're hard Looking like a postcard from the Rutland Isles uh, yeah, and it's the corniest, most cliched thing where he's like doing Dylan's voice and he can't understand it, anything he's saying. The joke everyone has made for 50 years. <laughs> There's a great bit at the end of, because obviously at the end of Saturday Night Live, the host and the musical guest and all the cast do an awkward embrace. They all pretend to look happy. Yeah, they all start <laughs> fucking and sucking and just having a great time. <laughs> <laughs> and Eric Idle just hugging a miserable looking Bob Dylan at the end of the 1979 one where Bob Dylan did three of his religious songs. He's saying, so uh, do you want to be my friend? Do you want to be my friend? Do you want to be my friend? <laughs> he probably would be like, oh, you know, Bob doesn't mind. We're good mates. He doesn't. He finds my impression funny. Yeah. He says it's really accurate, actually. <laughs> just, just like the Beatles did with all the Ruttle songs that I wrote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Neil Kinnock, not Neil Kinnock. Neil Innes. Neil Innes. <laughs> Neil Innes is dead now. He can't take credit. Yeah. R.I.P. Like, Neil Innes, honestly. The didn't. wrong Neil died. So your cross is pathed with Eric. Your that's I keep making so many of these fucking spoonerisms in in, <laughs> in this episode, but your path has crossed, Will, a couple of times with Eric Idle. There was a time, I mean, our listeners are probably familiar with this. We talked about it on the show when you bullied him off Twitter. <laughs> yeah, is... I think the Michael and Us podcast account got into a fight with them about something that he said about Jeremy Corbyn, that the Trotskyite wing of the Labour Party was going to make everything public, and like, what if they took over Python? And, and, nationalized Monty Python. And, and I mean, to me, BBC I mean... see show. <laughs> and I think, I mean, oh, God forbid that a bunch of jokes from 50 years ago suddenly entered the public domain. Like, maybe they should nationalize Monty Python, frankly. 
good idea. Yeah. yeah. And he was so upset by this, but he was like, I can't take He left this Twitter for like six anymore. months after that. Yeah. I this mean, this was what Michael Palin tried to warn us about in GBH <laughs> the mafia style hard left and their vicious intimidation tactics. I mean, if you had told me when I was eight years old, when I was like memorizing the nudge nudge sketch that <laughs> over 20 years later, I would be bullying Eric Idol off Twitter, I don't know what I would have thought about that. <laughs> but yeah, I did interview him once. I spoke. That's on... what I was going to say. Maybe we should close by recounting your actual encounter with Mr. Idol. So I don't really have a fun story or anything. I just spoke to him on the phone. I interviewed him okay. for What About Dick? And I did it because I was writing some stuff for NPR at the time. And the great thing about writing for a big venue is some bigger names will just talk to you if you ask. So I was sort of going, okay, well, who would I most like to talk to? I'd like to talk to a Python. What Python can I get? I'll look at if anyone has anything happening right now and I'll just interview them. And he had this very shitty show that he had just done. <laughs> so yeah, I talked so to a man could not have been more pleasant. I was overwhelmed hearing his voice on the other side of the phone, hearing that very familiar Eric Idle voice talking to me. <laughs> and yeah, I guess I'll just close by restating that I have unconditional love for him and uh, that if you wrote the nudge nudge sketch, you automatically get into heaven. Eric Idle, go on Michael and us. I'd love to have him. We'll have a happy conversation. We'll get to the bottom of this Corbyn issue. I think we can come up with a compromise solution. Yeah, he was saying he's not a socialist, dot, dot, dot. He's a communist. (laughs) (laughs) Great zing there, Eric. (laughs) He's still got it. Smash the dirty red scum! Take him in the teeth where it hurts! Kill! 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 Filthy bastard commies! I hate him! I hate him! Well, I mean, we've talked about the vast majority of remotely, not even significant, (laughs) the almost, the significantly insignificant post-Python projects of the Python team. All their attempts to recapture some of that old magic, very few of which have succeeded. It's been fun to think about why Mm -hmm. and how lightning do not seem to strike too many times in the same place with these guys maybe once a piece after python a fun thing to just go extremely deep about with a fellow python scholar i hope some people made it to the end of this episode (laughs) (laughs) absolutely eric idol specifically eric if you're listening please reach out i'd love to chat and i will apologize for anything i said yeah, Eric, if you're listening, I just want to say, uh, hated what about dick? <laughs> uh, <laughs> fuck all that annoying British bullshit. I had to switch it off after about 48 minutes of people going, oh, 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 penis. The horrible operatic singing combined with being like, Don't listen to him, Eric. I thought it was so funny when they made a joke about a vibrator. 
And I thought it was really funny when they made jokes about penises. I think Boo, that that's make the Russell three. I think that's Ste- really funny stuff for a ninety-eight-year-old comedian to be doing. <laughs> Steal a bunch of low-quality cassettes from Neil Kinnock's. No, Neil, Neil, I said Innes's. it again from Neil Innes's family house, where it's just him playing into a tape recorder on his piano, and make the Russells three with those. Like, yeah, the Russells made some music where it was just one guy. What of it? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, man, it's been great. Thank you. All right. Cheers, man. You have a good one, man. And enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. That was the end of Monty Python. And now the BBC is closing down forever. It's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing.